Uh, well, uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapters 1 and 2 here. And in a room like this, there's a reality that, that while there may be a number of differences and distinctions between us, uh, that, that, you know, the differences that we have, there are some things that every single one of us, we, we have in common with one another. And one thing that we all have in common is no matter who you are, no matter where you came from, no matter, you know, uh, what ethnicity, what, what income bracket, what nationality, no matter what. One thing that we all have in common is that we will, all of us, encounter days of darkness. And I'm not referring to the fact that at this time of the year it's dark outside by 6 p.m. I'm talking about the reality that we will all face and walk through hardships and struggles, suffering and and tragedy. Uh, At some point in this life, that, that comes for all of us. Uh, in, a, in a room like this, it's, it's likely that some of you are walking in today and, and marriage is really, really difficult right now. It's in a difficult place. Or, or you're, you're struggling financially right? and you're not, you're not sure how you're going to make ends meet and, and pay the bills and get through this next month. There are no doubt in a room like this people who are daily wrestling with anxiety and depression overwhelmed by that. Some of you are grieving incredibly deep and painful loss. And, and if you're in the room right now and, and none, of those, none of that's true for you, uh, just take a moment and say, thank you, Lord. Uh, praise God. But uh, not to be the bearer of bad news, this is not like, you know, this, it's like, where's the feel-good new year? Right? It's not here today, but, but it is. But it is, actually, it is, but in a way that's actually more meaningful and real. Um, The sure promise of Scripture is that in this world you will have trouble. You will. You will in time, if you're not right now, experience suffering and loss. None of us get out of this life without, without walking through some kind of suffering. So even if today is a really good day, the reality is that days of darkness will eventually find you. And when you're in those days of darkness, it can feel so isolating. It can feel like you're all alone. It can feel like God is nowhere to be found, that he he doesn't care. He's just gone. And if you've ever felt like that, you're not alone. You're not alone. All you have to do is turn to uh, any number of some of the Psalms and see things like this. You hear David saying in Psalm 13, 1 and 2, for example, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Or these words in another Psalm, Psalm 88, 14. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? The Bible and the Psalms in particular really allow for and understand the full range of human emotion. You know, this notion that the Christians are always supposed to have a smile on their face and everything's always cheery and good. God always, you know, if you have Jesus, he'll just bless you. There'll be no hard things the rest of your life. That's nonsense. That's that's not actually what the Bible even teaches. Uh, That's not real Christianity. God, God doesn't peddle some cheery fake news promise that if you just put your hope in him, nothing bad will ever happen in your life. God tells you the truth. Jesus says, John 16, 33, 
I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And in Exodus chapters 1 and 2, we see God's people in the midst of days of deep darkness. It seems that God is nowhere to be found. It seems that he has perhaps forgotten his people. Yet in the book of Exodus, God enables us to kind of peel back, pull back the curtain and kind of see what's happening behind the scenes a little bit. And what we see is that God remains present and faithful and at work, even in the midst of of deep darkness and dark days. That's what we see in our text today, Exodus chapter 1 and 2. We're going to read beginning in verse 8 today. I invite you to stand and, and turn there in your Bibles for the reading of God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Raamses. Um, And when you don't know how to say words in the Bible, you just guess and say it confidently. Uh, But the more they were oppressed, uh, the more they multiplied, and, and and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, And in all kinds of work in the field, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put uh, the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while, she, while her young women uh, walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call, a, call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take the child, this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. 
And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we, we recognize that you are faithful. We see your faithfulness to, you, to your word throughout the Bible, uh, faithfulness to your promises. And we see it most of all in the, 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 the sending of your son to live and die and rise for us, to, to be our rescue, to be the blessing to all nations. Lord, I pray by your grace yeah, that you know where, where we're at today, where each of us is at, how we're coming in here, whether it's a, a good day or a dark day. Lord, I pray by your grace you would enable us to see, even when it feels like you're not there, that you are very much present with your people. You are at work and you are faithful and you will be faithful to fulfill your promise. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see that. You help us to cling to your son by faith. Pray this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. Exodus 1 and 2 uh, show us that in the midst of deep darkness, God is faithful. He's faithful to his word He's faithful to bless those who fear him, and he's faithful to rescue his people in his perfect timing. First, we see that in the midst of of darkness, God is faithful to his word. To to really understand uh, what's happening here in in the the book of Exodus, you you really need a little bit more uh, background and context. Uh, And so, you know, here's a little bit. I'll try to be brief with some of this. But the title of the book, Exodus, uh, comes from the Greek word uh, for exit or departure. And of course, most people, even if you're not very familiar with the Bible, are somewhat familiar with the story of the Exodus. Because after all, it's been a favorite of many filmmakers uh, throughout the years. But what's more helpful to know is that the book actually begins. The very first word of the book of Exodus is the word and. And you're like, well, wait, I don't, I don't see and. It, it says these. Uh, in my, my translation, uh, it's not there in our English translations. But however, in the original language, the first word of the book of Exodus is the word and. And, and, and what that is showing us is that right away, Exodus is not a standalone story. It's not a standalone book. But rather, it's part of a bigger story. Uh, we like sequels. Uh, a lot of us just paid to go see another one recently, but, but, but Exodus is a sequel to Genesis. And even more, it should be understood as chapter two of the Pentateuch, the, right? The first five books of the Bible written by Moses. And so the whole book needs to be read through that lens. It needs to be understood uh, through that lens and, and, and understood through what has happened before. And what has happened before is this. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God called a man named Abraham out of pagan idolatry to to enter into covenant relationship with him, where Abraham would know and follow God. And and in that covenant, God promised Abraham that he would make him into a great nation, that he would give Abraham's family the land of Canaan as an inheritance, and that through Abraham's, Abraham's offspring, he would bless all nations. God promised in that promise of blessing, he's promising to bring a descendant through the line of Abraham who will fulfill God's promise that came even back before that in Genesis 3.15 at the fall where God promises that a savior would come to crush Satan's head and defeat him once and for all. 
400 years before the events here, Exodus chapter 1, God's promise to Abraham uh, appeared to be under threat as it looked like a famine might completely wipe out his family line. But in God's providence, one of Abraham's great-grandsons, Joseph, was sold by his jealous brothers into slavery and taken into Egypt. Uh, And and in time, by God's providence, again, uh, Joseph was raised and elevated to become prime minister, essentially, uh, of Egypt. And and in that time, uh, he wisely helps the Egyptians gather grain during the years of plentiful harvest to prepare prepare for the the seven years of famine so that they could survive those years. And Joseph was positioned by God in that to extend relief to his father's family. And so Abraham's descendants moved to Egypt and they enjoyed God's good provision. God was being faithful in that to his word. He was being faithful to his word, to his promise to Abraham, preserving his people. And as the book of Exodus begins, we see God is being faithful to his word to make Abraham into a great nation. In verses 1 through 5, we see the names of the sons of Israel uh, who came to Egypt. And and we're told at that time, 400 years before what we're really going to start to get into here, that the total number of Abraham's family who made that original journey to Egypt was, was just 70 people. 70 people. But verse 7 tells us that those 70 people multiplied greatly, filling the land. They have grown into a great nation. But this great growth begins to unsettle the new ruler in Egypt. Verses 8 through 10. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And so Pharaoh decides to afflict the people of Israel, enslaving them putting heavy burdens on them, forcing them to do all sorts of difficult, hard labor. Surely, right, this will put a stop to their growth. Uh, it'll, It'll squelch this growing nation. But what does the text say? Verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. As the passage goes on, Pharaoh tries to have the Hebrew midwives uh, kill all the sons born to the Hebrew women. Uh, that strategy only results, according to verse 20, in the people of Israel continuing to multiply. Right? Here's what we are meant to see as you, as you dig into these first two chapters and really the entire book of Exodus. What you will see is that when people act in their own strength, their plans are thwarted. Their schemes, their strategies fail miserably. But when people act in faith and in the fear of God, like the Hebrew midwives that we'll talk more about here in a moment, there is God-given fruitfulness. And if we really think on, on what we're reading here, what we are seeing is that God is faithful. He's faithful. That God is absolutely sovereign. He rules over all. Nothing happens outside of his will, right? And he's faithful to his word. His plans will not be thwarted. They will not be undone by a famine, uh, by an insecure, frightened, and angry king and his ruthless actions. Not by anything. God promises Abraham to make him into a great nation. And here he is fulfilling his promise, his word, even when it doesn't make sense. Pharaoh is, is seeking to thwart 
God's plans. But God in his sovereignty is even using the evil actions of Pharaoh to advance God's own plans to make his glory known through his people. This isn't God adjusting to some bump in the road that he didn't see coming. Right? This, this time in Egypt, these years of oppression are all part of his sovereign plan. Once again, look back in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 14, of what God told Abraham. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. The days of darkness that God spoke about to Abraham have, have come. And yet, despite being sojourners in a foreign land and despite being oppressed, God's people continue to multiply and ultimately will prosper because of God's promise. Because God is faithful to his word. Throughout Israel's history, they, they would be able to continually look back on this moment and remember God's faithfulness to his word. Even when there would be other times where they would be facing foreign armies that would threaten to wipe them out. They could have sure hope that God would be faithful to his promise. Because he's faithful. He always is. Hundreds of years later, another wicked king ordered the slaughter of innocent children, seeking to thwart God's promise of a Savior that would come and once and for all defeat Satan, sin, and death. But God would not be thwarted. His plans would not be undone. The baby Jesus' adoptive father uh, was warned in a dream to flee to Egypt, of all places. Again, preserving and fulfilling God's word. And now we stand on this side of the cross, able to know that God is faithful to his word. Though Satan constantly seeks to destroy God's people, and, to, and by destroying God's people to destroy God's promise, God remains faithful. He remains faithful. He will not allow Pharaoh or, or bad circumstances, tragedies, sufferings of any kind, or even Satan himself to undo his promises. And, and you are meant to see that and know that even in the midst of your own deep darkness, though it may seem that God is absent and he's forgotten you and he's doing nothing, that's not the reality. Behind the curtain, he is present. He's at work, faithfully keeping his word and, and fulfilling his promise. That's the first aspect of God's faithfulness we see here. A second one is this, that God is faithful to bless those who fear him. Uh, in Exodus 1 and 2, uh, it, it is actually four women who stand out as the uh, lowercase h heroes of the story. Of course, we, you need to understand in the Bible, Jesus is always the capital H hero of every story in the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, he is the capital H hero of every Bible story, by every Bible account. But God works beautifully to advance his purposes through these four women that we see here in the text. There are, of course, the two Hebrew midwives in chapter 1. Uh, we get their names, Shifra and Puah. Uh, and in chapter 2, uh, they're not named here in this text, but we'll, we'll get their names later. There's uh, Jochebed, the mother of Moses, and his older sister Miriam. Uh, first, right, the two Hebrew midwives. It's really interesting that in contrast to this evil Egyptian king, right, this person of power, prestige, royalty, never named in the entire passage. We, we don't get his name at all. Uh, he, he's Pharaoh, and then he dies at the end of chapter 2. Uh, uh, but 
yet we're introduced to these seemingly insignificant two women by name. By name. In the face of oppressive and evil, uh, in the face of the oppressive and the evil nameless Pharaoh, here are these two women whose names are recorded in Scripture because of their heroic faith. Pharaoh instructs him, kill every son born to the Hebrew women. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. What we need to see here is that the Hebrew midwives feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And and that's no no little thing. That, That should not be taken lightly. If you think that you live in a culture that's opposed to the gospel, right? And, and you do. Like, we, we do live in a culture that is opposed to the gospel. But, but we're not living in a culture where our sons are ordered to be killed at their birth because of our faith. This is a true totalitarian dictator with absolute power to have anyone killed at any moment who does not submit to his rule and his word and his authority. Pharaoh. Their refusal to follow his command displays tremendous courage and tremendous faith and tremendous trust in God. And here's God's respond to that faith faith. And in verse 21. He says, it says, and because of the midwives, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. God is, is not blessing. You should not understand that God is blessing because the way the the wording kind of falls there in the passage. He's not blessing the midwives because of their shading of the truth uh, when they answer Pharaoh's question, like, why did you not do what I told you to do? He's not blessing them that. He blesses, God blesses them because they feared God more than Pharaoh. Not only by their faith did God's people continue to multiply, But we see here God's blessing is to multiply their own household. And and that's significant as well. Because in this time, the the women who served as midwives were women who were unable to have children of their own. Unable to have children of their own. And here God blesses their faithfulness and their courage by graciously opening the wombs of these two women and giving them their own family, their own children. Showing God's faithfulness to bless those who fear him. In the wake of Pharaoh's order at the end of chapter 1, that every son born of the Hebrews shall be thrown into the Nile River. And that is saying, literally, if an Egyptian sees a Hebrew woman walking down the street with her baby boy, he is ordered to take that baby boy and throw it into the Nile River. Just toss him into the river. In the wake of this edict, we are introduced to two more women of faith, the mother and older sister of Moses. Now, Moses' mom and dad, they get, they get married. Uh, we don't see this very clearly in the text here, but it's very clear as you read through the book of Exodus that, that the Moses is not the firstborn son. Right? They got married. They had two other children sometime before this edict was passed. Moses has an older brother named Aaron that we will, we will get well acquainted with as we move forward, and an older sister named Miriam uh, before he was born. And before this order of genocide had come from Pharaoh. Moses' mother, though, gives birth to Moses. And in faith, she hides him for three months. She refuses to obey Pharaoh and throw her son into the river. Or to let anyone else do that. She hides him as long as she can. And terrifying risk to herself, she hides him. And when she can no longer hide him and keep him safe and hidden like that, 
As one commentator says, she obeyed the letter, but certainly not the spirit of Pharaoh's law. She takes a basket and prepares it to to float on the river. It's very interesting here that the, the same Hebrew word that is translated here for the basket is the same Hebrew word that is used to describe Noah's ark. It's the same, same word. For in much the same way that God delivered Noah from judgment by having him build an ark that floated on the waters, God delivers Moses by having his mother build a little ark that would float upon the waters. And in this action, Moses' mother is displaying great faith and trusting her child to God's care and deliverance. Even in such a time that, that God seems so absent, so, so not present, right? Not, he's, not, he's, not a, he's not liberating and redeeming his people out of this. Even in that moment, she puts her trust in God and she places Moses in a basket amongst the reeds by the riverbank. And then there's Moses' sister, Miriam. This little girl, right? She's, she stands at a distance just watching to see what's going to take place. And she watches as Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the river. And she watches as Pharaoh's daughter discovers the basket and the baby. And, and she notices the look of compassion that comes upon Pharaoh's daughter's face. And, and what great irony and, and providence from God. Now, don't miss this. Instead of Moses being killed by the will of the royal house, his rescuer emerges from the royal house, the daughter of Pharaoh. And Miriam is watchful. She's discerning. She sees this look come upon Pharaoh's uh, daughter's face, and she just jumps, no hesitation, on the opportunity to go and, and, and speak to her and, and come up with this really clever suggestion. Oh, it looks like you kind of like that baby, right? You, uh, you want me to go fetch you a nurse for that baby from amongst the Hebrew women? Might know of one, right? It makes it possible for Moses' own mother not only to nurse her own son, but to get paid to care for her own child. God's tremendous blessing, faith. And not only is she, she free to, to nurse and care for herself, she's, she's free to do it freely, publicly. Right? People might see her walking down the street with her baby and say, oh, that's an adorable little girl. What's her name? And she'd be able to freely say, this is my son. Aren't you afraid? No. He, nothing, no one can touch him. He, he belongs to the royal house. He's covered. Right? Amazing blessing here. God is faithful to bless those who fear him, even in the midst of suffering and hardship. Not in the sense that, that you might hear from the, the, the false health wealth gospel. That's not what is being talked about here. God does not guarantee that if you have faith in him, that he will, he will make you prosper financially and he will always keep you healthy and he will heal you of all your illnesses and diseases. That's, that's not what we're talking about. That's not what the Bible teaches. But rather, the Bible is saying, and is saying to us right here, that even in the midst of great poverty, God is able to bless those who fear him. That even in the midst of, of a terminal cancer diagnosis, God is able to bless those who fear him. Even as they go through that diagnosis toward their death, God is able to bless those who fear him. 
it might be the, the simple blessing of providing for your needs. Not, not prospering you to become wealthy and, and have no cares anymore, but to provide what you need. Now, I, I can think back, you know, the journey of church planning is filled sometimes with dark days. Um, in the very beginning of our church, you know, there being one moment in particular where it's like we got to a point where we're just getting started. There's not very many folks around. Uh, we're trying to raise support, all that sort of thing. And I don't know if we're going to get paid this week, right? And, and in fact, I'm having a conversation with my wife and telling her and preparing for this, that preparing her for the reality that it's likely that there will not be payroll uh, for, for us uh, this week. Uh, you know, that that's where we're at. And taking time to, to pray, and then walking out to the mailbox that afternoon to find an, an envelope from a supporter with a check for $6,000, right? God's provision for our needs, not prosperity, but what we need, what we needed. It might be the blessing of enjoying deep and, and treasured relationship with family and friends in the body of Christ. It might be the blessing of the relational presence of someone, someone who just loves on you and enters in with you. This, this year has been a, a tough year for, for, uh, for me and, and my family and, and some dear friends of mine. One of my closest friends was killed in a car wreck uh, this past May. Um, and we were at the Sojourn Network uh, conference in October, a place another soldier he was another soldier network pastor a place where we would have spent a lot of time together and, and definitely his first time at that conference and at an event like that where he wasn't there and another brother another pastor in the network um, sought out my wife and I just to take us out to lunch just to spend time with us just to offer relational presence just to enter into that with us it just doesn't make the grief go away it's a blessing a blessing of great care it might be the blessing of, of you know, seeing, uh, you know, as parents, right, your, your children who are wandering. Or, or maybe as, as children, seeing your parents who are wandering from the faith. Or, or friends who do not know the Lord. The blessing of seeing them come to saving faith in Christ. It might be that sort of blessing, but it most certainly will be this sort of blessing. The blessing of increasing hope and peace, knowing that in Christ we have certain hope that in these dark, that these dark days will pass. Right? That just as sure as, as Christ lived and died and was raised to defeat Satan's sin and death, he is returning again to usher in the fullness of his kingdom where he will renew and restore all things. And there will be no more tears. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more death. No more sin. Just glory with Christ forevermore. And that leads naturally to the third aspect of, of God's faithfulness that we see here. And that is that God is faithful to rescue his people in his perfect timing. God's promise to Abraham was to make him into a great nation uh, and to give his descendants a land of blessing, a, a place of rest. And so far, God is clearly fulfilling the first part of that promise, making them into a great nation. But the promise of a land, a place of rest, seems to be still so far away. Right? Slavery is, in fact, the opposite of rest. It's the opposite of rest. It's, it's the opposite of that, that fulfill, that part of the, the fulfillment of that part of the promise. Yet God is, even in the midst of that, faithful and at work 
And, and all of it is about to begin to change. The second, as the second half of chapter 2 begins, we, we jump forward seven, uh, several years here. In fact, Acts uh, 7.23 tells us that, that uh, verse 11, when, when verse 11 in chapter 2 happens, Moses is actually 40 years old. He's 40 years old. Uh, you, you, you make your own commentary that when Moses had grown up, he was 40. Uh, you know, so uh, he's 40. Look at what takes place here, verse 11 to 12. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Moses is now a man, and as a man, he chooses to identify with his people. He chooses to be a Hebrew. Acts 7.25 suggests to us that Moses knew even at this point that God was using him to rescue his people. But Moses seeks to bring about that deliverance in his own timing and in his own strength, by his own efforts, and it's a colossal failure. He responds to unjust aggression with unjust aggression of his own, murdering a man, and as a result, he has to flee to Midian. Moses is not only on the run from Pharaoh who wants to kill him, but we're also told in the text that he's lost all the respect of, the, of his own people. They don't respect him. He's a murderer. It serves as a powerful illustration of where we get when we seek to do God's work in our own strength and in our own timetable. Tim Chester offers this insight in his commentary. He says, we know Moses will liberate God's people from Egyptian slavery, but, but here he behaves like an Egyptian slave master. He needs to unlearn the ways of the Egyptian court. It is a reminder that we cannot do God's work in worldly ways. But perhaps the real point is that it's not Moses who will liberate Israel through human politics. It's God who will liberate his people through his divine power. And before God will lead Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he, he works to bring about a mini exodus for Moses personally. Really, God does this twice, if, if you pay attention here, right? The first one, of course, is the work that, that God does to preserve his life following his birth. But the second exodus in Moses' life is, is taking place here. God is leading Moses out to draw him in. He, he leads Moses out to draw him into relationship with God to prepare him for, for the work that God intends to work in and through him. And when Moses escapes to Midian, he, he immediately finds a home there. Uh, and, and that's not simply coincidence and chance, because while the Midianites were nomads, the place that they wandered around was the Sinai Peninsula and, and the land of Canaan, Canaan, right? All areas that were part of the land of promise, promise to Abraham. And in this place, in clear contrast to Egypt, the Lord is worshipped freely. He's worshipped freely there in Midian. To sum up briefly what, you'll, what you see in verses 16 through 22, Moses rescues a group of women in distress at a well and ends up marrying one of them. It's a story that's full of echoes of the, the accounts of the patriarchs in Genesis. He settles down with a wife. They have a son, a son in safety, no threat of terror. And again, the people of God continue to multiply. On a small scale here, what you're seeing is God is fulfilling the fullness of his promise to, Ab uh, of his promise to Abraham to multiply him into a great nation and to give him a land of blessing, a land of rest. 
But the work of God is far from over, and he has not abandoned or forgotten his people. That's what we see in those last few verses, verses 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue uh, from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew Now, these verses, it's very clear. Two things are very clear. That God is absolutely sovereign, that he works to fulfill his promises and his perfect timing, and nothing will undo that. Uh, He's a covenant-keeping God. But it's also very clear that God hears and responds to the prayers of his people. Both are true. Prayer influences God, but nothing happens apart from God's sovereign will. He does everything exactly according to his plan. Both of those things are true. The Bible doesn't resolve the mystery of how those both things are true together, but it just says they're both true. They're both true. God is sovereign. Nothing happens outside of his plan, and prayer works. Prayer makes a difference. God hears and responds to our prayers. In verse 23, the people are groaning because of their slavery, but the verse makes it clear that they're not just complaining about their circumstances. No, they're, they're crying out. It says their cry for rescue came up to God. What is that? That is prayer. They're crying out to God. Lord, help us. Remember us. Rescue us. We are, we are meant to see here that, that, that time passing, you know, time passes. And it brought no relief. One Pharaoh dies and another Pharaoh comes into power. Right? Political change brought no improvement, but their prayers made a difference. They prayed to God, and God heard, God saw, and God knew. There's no immediate change, right, in that. Like, we don't see immediate change there. The prayer is effective, though, even though the change isn't immediate. The dark days of suffering and oppression are still upon them. Moses is still in Midian. But God has heard their prayer, and God was at work in that moment to keep his word and begin to rescue his people. We, we, we should also be clear that when it says that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, that, that remembering is a covenantal term. Uh, it means deciding to act uh, in order to fulfill a covenant. Uh, if, you're, if you're married, right, um, it's not that you like forget, oh man, I, I totally forgot that I'm married and I have a covenant. And then all of a sudden, like, oh, now I remember I have a covenant and I am to keep myself faithful only to my wife. That's, that's not what that means, right? No, you, you remember your covenant by taking decided action to remain faithful to your spouse. Remembering here means that God is about to take the next step in fulfilling his promise to Abraham. And and God's covenant with Abraham is going to drive this story. I'm almost done here. See what happens? You know, I'm just just going to keep you here and preach this sermon no matter what. Uh, We're going to get through it, though. We're almost there. Uh, When it says that God saw his people and he knew, it's referring to the fact that, that he knew their suffering and he knew his promises. He knew their suffering. And he knew his promises. And he is faithful to rescue his people in his perfect timing. But you need to understand, this is not some standalone story about how God rescues just a particular oppressed people group. 
It's part of the larger story about how God fulfills his promise to bring salvation to all people, to every nation, tribe, and tongue. This, is, this story is an essential link in the chain that is the, that bigger story. God will redeem Israel out of slavery. He will lead them out to draw them in to be his people. That through that people eventually will come a true and better Moses, Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, comes to us as the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's promises. We sang it earlier, 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Jesus Christ chooses to step out of heaven and identify himself with us, his people. But unlike Moses, he's perfect and he's without sin. He lives a sinless life we never could in our place. And he so enters into our suffering and darkness that Jesus willingly exchanges his perfect life for a Roman cross where he goes to suffer and die the death that you and I deserve for our sins and our place. But just as every edict and choice of Pharaoh that he makes to seek to destroy Israel is thwarted and actually, actually is twisted to serve, to bless and multiply God's people, so it is with Satan's scheme to destroy God's son as Jesus triumphs over sin and death through his glorious resurrection, liberating us from slavery to sin and death and assuring us that our days of darkness are numbered. For light has come and is coming again. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. He's the blessing to all nations. He's the one who takes us all and makes us by faith in him, God's people, sons and daughters of God. He's the one who is our rest and our home, our promised land, that that we can cling to even in these days where, where we face trouble and hardship. Even more than looking back on the exodus, you and I, we can look back on the cross and the empty tomb. And know that even when all seems dark and hopeless, even when we're in the midst of of great suffering and loss, depression, anxiety, and God seems nowhere to be found, we can remember Jesus and know that God has not forsaken us. And he he will be faithful. He is at work and he will be faithful to his word because he always is and he always has been. He will be faithful to bless those who fear him. And he will be faithful to bring ultimate rescue and redemption that we truly long for in his perfect timing. But for now, he invites us to to pray to him, to call out to him, and to know that he hears, he sees, and he knows. The question is for you, do you know him? Do you know him? Have you looked upon the person and work of Christ and responded to him by turning from your own efforts and resting in his finished work? Have you said to Jesus, have mercy on me, Lord. I'm a sinner in need of your grace. If you haven't, I would invite you to look at his faithfulness to you. Look at his faithfulness. Look at his love. And put your hope in Christ and not in yourself. Put your hope in Christ and not in your circumstances. Put your hope in Christ. The Lord's Supper, 
I told you we're going to make it. Gives us a tremendous memorial to look upon each week where we can remember the faithfulness of our God to his promises. We're told in the scriptures that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We, we take of the bread and the cup. We remember Christ's body that was broken, his blood that was shed in faithfulness to all of God's promises. And we take it looking forward to the day that we will feast with him again in glory, knowing that he is coming. Believers, you're invited to come forward as we continue to worship, to share in this meal. We, we take this meal by breaking off a piece of the bread, dipping it in the cup. We offer juice and wine to take uh, as your conscience leads you. The wine is in the glasses marked with twine. If you're not a believer in Christ, it's an opportunity to respond to God's faithfulness, to take Christ in faith. There'll be pastors and prayer responders here in the back of the room. Love to visit with you. Love to pray with you about anything that you're walking through right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we are so grateful so grateful that you are faithful. Even though we fail, even though we are so often faithless, you are faithful. Faithful to your word. Faithful to bless those who fear you. Faithful to always rescue your people in your perfect timing. Lord, you, you know our hearts in this room. You know the lies that we're tempted to believe. By your Spirit, would you enable us to see your goodness, to see your grace, to see your faithfulness, to cling to you, to put our hope in you, not in our circumstances, to put our hope in you and not in our best efforts, to put our hope in Christ who, who has finished the work, who has fulfilled your promise and promises to come again to bring ultimate rescue and relief. May we cling to that. May we live for that. May we join you in spreading the news of that, that glorious good news to others. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.